You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is I Will Make You a Millionaire, another episode helping someone reach their goal of making millions. I'm with James Pondell. We're talking about, and with Jay. Jay, you should stay on uh, this one. Okay. We were talking about the interview with Bram Cohen, how that was difficult because even though I know a lot about crypto and I know I'm a computer science person by training, I really didn't understand a lot what he was saying. And every time I said anything, he was like, no, you're wrong. But I was right on offering him potential use cases for Chia. Like he was very excited about, for instance, the use case of Chia for uh, tokenizing virtual money in esports and, you know, stuff like that. So I understood what was going on. I've been able to describe it to other people. But just then I, I you know, so the question, so James, you asked the question, what do I do in interviews like that? You know, when I don't know something, I don't know something. There's not much I could do. And and Bram's entertaining just because he's so smart. And, you know, as he admits, he's he's got a little bit of Asperger. So it's, you know, and it's it's a pleasure to see someone who's so on top of their game in any field, let alone crypto, which is such an exciting field right now. So the reason I asked this specifically was because I started recording episodes for the James Quandell show since we talked last. And I've got five episodes recorded now. Now I'm listening to these interviews with a different hat on to where I'm sitting there going, well, how would I interview this person? And since I've been interviewing different people now, I'm starting to realize based on their just like introvert, extrovert, or, or just based on their communication styles, these interviews are different. Actually, this is a good, interesting point. Let's go over like several different interviewing styles because this is a really important point for everyone. A good way to build rapport with somebody else is to ask questions to them and do it in such a natural way that you're sincerely curious and they become interested in you because you're interested in them and so on. So what I'm saying is everybody needs some degree of interviewing skills just to do business. Like, you know, even when I was doing sales in my very first business in the 90s, I had to go into interview mode to really understand what they needed. And by the way, usually people don't know what they need. So they'll tell you what they need and then you have to listen between the lines what are they really saying? What do they really need? Let's just look at several different great interviewers, like famously great. Whether you like them or not, it's not the point. It's just different interviewing styles. So there's Howard Stern is one style. Larry King is another style. Joe Rogan is another style. And then for lack of anything, let's just take the podcast interview style, which is, you know, like me or Tim Ferriss or, you know, people who interview book writers and, and so on. And they're, they're kind of, they're kind of like interviews, uh, in the classic sense. I don't know, like James, do you have a, a favorite, one of those styles that you follow? Well, I did read Howard Stern's book. What I liked about it, his style in that was, it was just like very conversational and he would kind of come back to the same question in different ways throughout the interview and sometimes he would just kind of like shock someone. He'd be like, oh, you've got a pretty big house, right? Like you're, you're pretty rich. 
And they'd be like, yeah, you know, and like they'd be talking about something then that like they would never be talking about. First off, that's a great book. Uh, here he comes again. This is like a guidebook to how to be a great interviewer. And inarguably, Howard Stern is one of the greatest interviewers ever as demonstrated by his, set, his success. I was about to say sex because he's always has, particularly when he was starting out, he had so much sexual content. You would think that's why people tuned in but that's not really the reason. The reason is, is because he is a great interviewer. Like, like you said, it almost seems like a conversation and a lot of it is, and he's got, you know, jokes prepared and people are handing him jokes and he's a funny guy, almost like a comedian himself. But again, very astute observation is that he'll ask a question. Sometimes he'll ask it in a shocking way. And the guy or, or a woman will say, oh no, Howard, I don't want to talk about that. And how, no problem. Howard backs off builds more rapport. He asks them like, Hey, how'd you grow up? Did your parents beat you? Like whatever. And then he'll hit it. That same question from another angle. And then from another angle. And meanwhile, all the time he's building rapport. So either he catches them off guard and they finally answer, or they build such rapport. The guy they I've heard from guests, they completely forget they're being interviewed and they're just like talking to their best friend. And they, they say the answer, like, like to Jonah Hill, there was a, a Jonah Hill interview in there. And he, Howard keeps asking like, Oh, when you start, started to hit it big, were you starting to have lots of sex in Hollywood? And Jonah's like, ah, oh, man, you know, Jonah's wearing his glasses. Oh man, I don't want to talk about that. And, but eventually he's like, yeah, you know, he, he starts to break down. And your point of like, why is Howard Stern first start off asking it in a shocking way? Well, it's almost like, um, the, the the cognitive bias called the anchoring effect. So let's say your boss says, let's say you go into your boss for a, a pay raise and your boss is like, okay, well, what do you want? And you say, oh, I want to make, you know, a million dollars a year. And you're making only like 50,000 a year or whatever. Not only, but that's a good salary too, but compared to a million. And, and then the boss laughs and you laugh, but now you've anchored the boss at a high, ridiculously high number. So when you come in at like, 70,000, even though that's a huge, it's a 40% increase from 50,000, it's really a step down from a million. And so Howard, Howard Stern is using this bias, uh, anchor bias to this anchoring effect to anchor the interviewee. Oh, you know, I'm going to ask these really hard, ridiculous questions to you. So you better be on your toes. And so later on, if he asks it in a milder way, people feel relief and they'll answer that like, yes, I'll answer this because I don't want to answer even though they don't realize they're answering the same, largely the same thing. Based on reading the book, it sounds like he puts in a lot of preparation hours before the interview where he knows everything about these people's backstory and everything about their life too. Everything. So he, he is a massive preparer. Of the, all the ones I mentioned, he is a massive preparer. So I've learned a lot from his interview style just by studying it for years and years. Um, both as a listener and as, as a, in particular, I've gone over that book like two or three times at least, and met some of those interviews many times just to study the interview style. And by the way, it's important to study these things. You have to think about them and study them. I've been interviewed on hundreds and hundreds of podcasts and most podcasters are not good interviewers. They don't prepare enough or they do prepare. And then they have canned questions like, you know, what happened to you then? And then what happened to you? And they don't know how to ask follow-up questions. So they just go on to the next question that they had prepared. It's a hard skill like any other skill. That's one thing I, I like about the interviews that you do with authors of books, because I've even heard some of the authors say, you're like, oh, let's get like really deep into this. 
like way beyond like the book. And they're like, great. I'm so happy. I've just been like talking about this book with hundreds of people and they all ask the same questions. And like, you know, you actually are going deep beyond those questions. I think it was the uh, persuasion interview and maybe the Philip Stutz interview that you kind of did that with. I always read the books and I try to read other books that they've written. Like, you know, one person that was almost difficult to, you know, sometimes like take Robert Greene as an example. Robert Greene wrote 48 Laws of Power. That's his most famous book. Uh, his most recent one is The Laws of Human Nature. Um, he writes, he is the one of the smartest people alive. I love interviewing him. Uh, I love his books, uh, but he's written a lot of, you know, he wrote a book called Mastery. He wrote another book called Seduction. Another wrote another book about war. And I, his books have so much history and so much information. They're all great reads. But to prepare for him is very difficult because I read all of them. And then I'm interviewing him again a year later. Oh, I have to read all of them again to remember. Oh, you'll read them all again. Yeah, because they're so dense. It's a, well, it's always a good fact to know, which is that when you read a book like that, you're only going to remember two to 5%, best case, best case. So I read them again, just because it's as if I had never read them before. But he's he's very hard to prepare for, even though I get so much value out of it. And then the other thing is, I want them to feel trust with me. They're going on the podcast book tour. Many people haven't read their books. I know this because I know other podcasters. Most people don't read the full book. So I, I also try to make sure that I'm ready with ammo to show them that I've read their book. So even though I have read the book and just in general interviewing them should show them that, I come prepared with very specific things that will prove that I've read the book very quickly. So I might have a point from the last third of the book that I really want to hone in on. And that might be the first question I ask. And so they know that I've, even though I could have done that without reading the book, you know, I, I read the book and then find something in the latter end of the book to start with so that they know. Um, and then I'll try to weave it in with other parts of the book. So they know that I've come prepared, even though that might be specifically canned, it's a good way to start off. The other thing is I'll read the acknowledgements and I'll try to ask a question from the acknowledgements. Like, why did you acknowledge the Dalai Lama in this book? Like, do you know him? <laughs> and, uh, uh, or, or why did you say in your acknowledgements, you know, thanks for my wife for putting up with me, you know, all the tears and, uh, you know, what were you crying about? So then they'll usually say something like this happened. I remember once with, um, with Adam Grant, uh, he'll be like, boy, you really have read the book. You even read the acknowledgements. <laughs> and so, but even though that's a little bit staged, it's still sincere. And then, yes, I like to go beyond the topics of the book. And you can only do that if you read the book. So particularly with Influence by Robert Cialdini, I wanted to know that this is not just academic research. I want to know that I read so many books about persuasion and influence where I feel like, oh, this is all academic, but it doesn't work in real in the real world. So I really wanted to get into that with him because he's considered the world's expert on persuasion. And, he, and you know, a lot of people use his stuff for marketing and poli political campaigns and so on. So, but let's go to the other end of the spectrum, which is Larry King. Larry King, I never appreciated his style, which is he specifically does not prepare at all. He barely knows who his, the interviewee before they walk in the room. I, I, I remember, I don't remember the exact details. He was interviewing Jerry Seinfeld once and he asked this like really weird question. And, and Jerry Seinfeld like squinted at him and said, Larry, you do know I had a TV show, right? <laughs> so, uh, and, and, but, but, you know, Larry's King's point is, and, and look, let's just admit it out loud. Maybe he's just lazy and he didn't want to prepare for everybody. 
And and if he didn't need to. Yeah, I mean, obviously he had a success without doing that. But his point was, I mean, this is why, you know, as you know, James, in chess, there's a saying, uh, better to have a bad plan than no plan at all. So let's say it's a bad approach to never prepare, but at least he had a plan around that, is that he was very sincere about how he never, he his his plan was he wants to be on the side of the audience who also might not have read anything by this author. And so he's using the complete audience perspective to bring out the essence of what this author has to say. Now, that might be BS. Maybe he just, again, maybe he just was lazy and didn't want to prepare, and this is just a BS excuse for it. But at least he had a plan, a philosophy behind what he was doing. And as long as he was consistent with that philosophy, he was able to pull it off. And and his guests knew that he was going to be doing that. So right, right. They, didn't, they weren't like surprised or disappointed that they that he hadn't read his stuff or watched their show. In fact, often the best parts of these interviews is when they said, Larry, are you kidding me? Like, don't you know that I'm the president of the United States <laughs> or whatever? Oh, like, you are? <laughs> so, so, you know, it worked for him. And then uh, there's a third style, which is Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. which uh, Joe Rogan's a reader. You can see he's, he's most likely read the book. Uh, but by the way, it's not, you know, Everybody I mentioned, I'm using book as an example, but you know, maybe somebody is a athlete or maybe somebody uh, did something famous or maybe it's just a friend of his. Uh, it's not always interviewing someone for, for a book, but but I find Joe Rogan to be mildly prepared, maybe not as well as Howard Stern, but he's, he's a prepared guy and he's a reader. He knows a lot of things. He knows a lot of things about a lot of different subjects as exemplified by his career. You know, he was an actor, he was a comedian, he was an MMA announcer. Uh, he was host of reality shows. He's a podcaster. He's interested in politics. He's interested in finance. So he's a well-rounded guy who has opinions. And um, you can argue Joe Rogan's not afraid to share his opinions, but I think that's a virtue of being the most successful out there. So people are a little intimidated when they go on his show, even if they're also famous people. Joe Rogan's style is to very quickly get into a conversation. Like, let's say, I'm just hypothetically saying, let's say um, Barack Obama's on his show. Joe Rogan might say something like, um, you know, hey man, did you watch the Friends reunion on HBO last night? Like, what did you think of that? Like, he'll just ask like, if as if he was just hanging out with Barack Obama and nobody was listening. And then he'll start to dive into more and more issues. And then you realize, oh, he really is prepared and is diving in intensely on some key issues but he really tries hard to make it a conversation, to make his guests laugh and feel comfortable. He never wants them to feel uncomfortable. You very rarely see a situation where the guest is feeling uncomfortable and they feel so comfortable that they literally are willing to commit illegal acts on his show. Like Elon Musk smoking marijuana was, you know, not that smoking marijuana in California is illegal, but if you're uh, an executive of a company listed on the stock market, it is illegal. <laughs> And the SEC had to decide if they were going to take action against Elon Musk for smoking pot on Joe Rogan's show. I like all these styles, but I would probably say I would like Joe Rogan's style the best, which is just, hey, man, we're just having a conversation and we're going to talk about a lot of things. We might talk a little bit about whatever you're trying to promote, but we might not. And we're just going to talk about what I'm interested in. And, you know, you might have like, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on and say, hey man, you, what do you think of UFOs? There was just this news article this morning about UFOs. Do you believe in them? And you know, then they just start talking about that. It doesn't seem like he does like a gotcha. Like he's trying to 
catch him off guard. No, no, but none of these people do. Uh, yeah. Well, Howard Stern might a little bit, but not really. Howard, none of these people do. You know why? Because they're not reporters. They're not, and they're not lawyers. They're not trying to make a fool of somebody. You know, in each one of those situations, and maybe I didn't include professional interviewers like reporters because I don't view myself as a reporter or a journalist. I view myself as someone who has on people I'm personally interested in who are gonna make my life better and my listeners' lives better. I wanna build a rapport with them. Sometimes it's nerve wracking. I would say the most difficult interviews are when people only wanna promote one thing. Not only do they only wanna promote their book or show whatever, their typical response is, well, I'm not gonna tell you that, you gotta read the book for that. <laughs> So we had a situation like that recently. I've had that situation twice, and in both situations, I did not. I couldn't release the episode. It's no good. So what do you do in that situation? Like when you're not going to release an episode? I just don't release it. Yeah. I don't. I don't tell them. You know, because then maybe they want to come on again, and you know, it's just the pot. And I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying the podcast format not, might not be the best way for them to market uh, something. So. It's just best to, we all wash our hands of it. And, you know, I still want to have a relationship with their publicists or whatever, but it's not, I can't rely, release a bad episode because then I'll lose, you know, I'm trying to provide a service to listeners. And even though I kind of joke around and say, this podcast, I'm selfish, this podcast is just for me. Ultimately, I have to make it good for listeners. Like you and I, when we have these types of episodes, the, you know, so-called I will make you a millionaire episodes, you and I are having a conversation and the listener often will feel like a fly on the wall that I, while I'm trying to give you specific advice and you're asking questions and you're presenting the knowledge you have about whether it's on, you know, am, building Amazon stores or spiritual topics or Christian topics. But at the end of the day, I'm also thinking in the back of my mind, the listener wants to hear some lessons in this. And so I structure our conversation sometimes in the form of It'll feel like a conversation, but it, right now I'm very specifically giving a lesson about interviewing. And we've, we've talked about interviewing before, so I like talking about this with you. At the end of the day, it's a hard skill. Like I've done almost 800 episodes of this podcast, and then I did another several hundred of Question of the Day, which wasn't really an interview show. But in, I'm going to argue right now, I've, I've done the very first podcast on the internet. So back in 1996, I did a project for HBO.com where every Wednesday night I'd go out in New York City at three in the morning and I would interview prostitutes, drug dealers, pimps, homeless people, whoever was out at three in the morning on a Wednesday night, which is an odd night to be out on Wednesday in the night. You know, it's an odd night to be out at three in the morning. And I would put up the transcript because audio was too difficult to download. I'd put up the transcript and images on HBO.com's website. And I would argue it was, it was like a, it was like a podcast. And so I did about, I would do 20 interviews a week and I would pick four to put up on the website. So I did this for three years. So let's say, so I did about 2000 interviews during that period, another 800 now, and I'm still nervous. Still, I still have some really bad interviews and some good ones. Like it's a really, it, it's no easier skill than most, what I'll call hard skills. <laughs> And so when something's a hard skill, A, it takes a long time to learn it. It takes practice. You know, it takes a plus minus equals, meaning you, you find a coach, you find equals to study, and you find your minus to teach. The other thing is when something's a hard skill is that you're going to be disappointed a lot of the time. So some interviews are just going to be too difficult for me and I'll be disappointed, but that's the nature of a hard skill.
I had uh, two such interviews so far where afterwards I was disappointed. And why were you disappointed? Like, well, I didn't feel like I did a great job. And um, kind of like what you said about the when it feels like there's just like canned answers. I felt like in one of them, I was struggling to get a lot of conversation. And, and uh, so I had some questions written out and just in case that happened. And the, the guest would kind of just stop talking. And we just kind of like, like the middle, like the middle of a conversation just kind of stopped talking. And I'd, I'd have to like really quickly, like put energy back in. So it was really, it was really a draining interview. It wasn't like conversational where it felt like, um, we were just sitting back, you know, we we're basically giving each other energy and, and kind of like going from there. Yeah, no. And I know, so, so there are types of guests and some guests, there's almost nothing you can do. I think there's almost nothing you can do. Like the kind of guest who's going to say, Hey, you got to read my book. If you want to know that, I don't know what, what to do. I'm not the type of person to say, listen, you're on my podcast. And if you want to market your book, you have to answer my, I, I'm not the type of person to be like in, in the face of someone. So I have a hard time with those, but there are sometimes, most of the time you have to, when something's bad, it's, it's your fault because exactly. some guests, you know, being a guest is difficult. Also being a guest is scary. They don't know how much to talk. They don't know how much to answer. They don't know if something's too complicated for the audience. So they might say a couple sentences and then stop waiting for you to do your job and ask another question. And then you have to recognize, okay, this person wants to be a good guest. He's trying or she's trying, but. I've got to do something else. I can't just sort of talk about the book. Maybe you just say like, you know, did you cry while you were writing this book? Or when was the last time you made your wife cry or whatever? Like just ask some weird questions or like, or even like, where are you from? Why do you live there? And just go off in a different direction and get them talking. Or, you know, as one person advised me a few weeks ago on, on this podcast, like say, hey, based on your book and not knowing anything about me, give me some free advice. <laughs> and see what they say. And often if I'm nervous about a guest, I'll watch comedy beforehand just so I know how to joke around with them or I'll feel comfortable joking around with them. But yeah, some people, some guests just like are quiet for a while and they, because they're expecting you to fill in the gaps and you feel anxious then, like I got to fill in the gap. One thing to realize though, is that this is a podcast. So you could edit out the silences if you feel like there's too much silence. So you don't have to worry about that so much. But I think it's good to have an approach to, about how to deal with each type of guest. Would you research that guest maybe if there was interviews they were on and then you could prepare differently based on that? Yeah, like so I'll often watch, if somebody's like going on the podcast book tour as I call it, and they were already on Tim Ferriss and, and everybody, a bunch of other people, I will specifically say, hey, if people wanna know more about this guy's book, Tim Ferriss did an excellent interview with him. You could um, listen to that interview. But I specifically want to ask you about, you know, my problems with relationships and can you help me out? And, and it'll be related to their book, but I'm not going to specifically go over chapter by chapter. So, and then people realize, oh, first off, I'm being very abundant in thinking like, hey, I could recommend a quote unquote competitor podcast because I'm secure about my own podcast. And B, I'm kind of like letting the guest off the hook, like just recommended people not only listen to my podcast, but listen to other podcasts about his book. So they get it from every angle. And now I'm going to get him, give him a chance to use his expertise to really help me, which is, I'm the 
I'm the stand-in for the audience. So he's really helping the audience because I'm going to ask a question that I think is on the audience's mind, actually. But you're right, though. The, the, sometimes the challenge is you have someone who's really smart, haven't developed a rapport with, who is silent at different points. And so you have to fill in the gaps and you really have to prepare. How am I going to fill in those silences? And you know, yeah. what kind of offbeat questions am I going to answer? And by the way, it might occur to you during, you don't have to prepare. It might occur to you naturally during the interview, but you have to be able to kind of like, if you sense it's that kind of guest, you have to pull them out of the box a little bit. You know, I, I did this with Jordan Peterson. I asked him, Hey, you know, you've been on Joe Rogan. You've been on all these great podcasts. What, what advice could you give me as a podcaster? I could have asked him all about his book. Everybody already asked him about that. So I was like, listen, you're a psychologist. I have problems help me out. I have a lot of stress and anxiety. And you know, he gave great, great answers, which we then made uh, an animated video out of. Oh, really? I, I haven't seen the video. It's funny. And these guys, Food Fight Studios, shout out to them. They've done a lot of animations for a lot of podcasts. They're really funny at what they do. They're, they're great at it. So you're right on my own preparation was lacking because I was gifted with the four interviews I did before that. With guests, I basically probably could have like said nothing and they could have filled the whole time. Like they were, you know, they were very, they had a lot they wanted to say. And so I took that for granted and then uh, paid the price. And so what's, I go back and listen and I'm like, okay, it's not as bad as it felt, right? <laughs> but it's still like, I want to get better and I want to improve and I want to do a good job. I want to make the guests look good. I want the audience to learn something. That's on me to continue to get better. By the way, that's a different type of guest, the one who fills up all the time. And sometimes you do, I mean, I only have a guest on because I, I legitimately have questions. <laughs> so <laughs> I wanna be able to ask my questions. And sometimes that that's a very difficult guest as well. When you like them, you like what they're saying, but you just wanna interrupt a little bit to ask your question. And and it's hard, sometimes they, over, they overrun you and that's very difficult as well. You have to have a strategy for that. Like, Tony Robbins was a little like that, you know, great guy. Uh, we were talking about his book, Money, but he had his stick. And so I literally, and he's very, you know, he's a huge guy and he's like very, has a lot of energy. He was banging on the table, he's yelling. And I had to literally yell to stop one second. Why would Bill Clinton call the 36 year old Tony Robbins for advice? And, you know, he, he laughed and then, and it kind of like shook him a little, he laughed and then answered. And we, we, you know, we always got along in the podcast after that. I don't know. There's a lot of strategies for that. Sometimes you could like very sincerely, but in a, in a, in a nice way, disagree with him about something or, or say, look, I'm conflicted about something. You know, so this way you're not playing gotcha. Like, but don't, wouldn't you say blah, blah, blah. No, you're not trying to prove them wrong. You're just trying to say, Hey, help me understand this a little more. And then it becomes, starts to evolve more into a conversation. Your, your, whole, your whole goal really is always to figure out a strategy to make it evolve into a genuine conversation. So even though like right now I am talking a lot more than you and almost like giving a lesson about interviewing and podcasting, and again, interviewing is a useful skill for not just podcasting, but for, for all aspects of life, this is how a conversation occurs. Like, you know, sometimes one person talks more, sometimes another, it's not, uh, conversations aren't, communist events, like they, they don't have to be equal, but I feel like we're having a conversation, which leads me to the, the best kind of guest, which is you and some others, which is that people I'm genuinely friends with or build a rapport with. In my very first business, again, I always learned this one rule, your best new customers are your old customers. So let's say Sony was a customer of, or let's, uh, yeah, Sony was a customer that I did do this with. Sony was a customer for my first business. I made websites and 
rather than trying to get an, after I finished the job with them, rather than trying to get a completely new client from scratch, I would go back to Sony and I would look through all their roster of all the assets they owned. And I say, listen, how about we make a website about I Dream of Genie? I noticed you own this 1960s TV show that I loved, love to make a website about it. And they'd say, sure, we don't really have a budget for it. And I'd be like, no problem. I'll just charge a little bit. And then I'm still in their minds, in their mind when, until they have the next big project to work on. That makes so, Yeah. Yeah. So, so for the podcast, my best downloaded episodes are always with people who have been on before that I have like great rapport with. I've had people on, you know, five to 10 times or more, and they're just good guests because we get along and we hang, it's just like, we're just hanging out and it happens to be being recorded. But, you know, and I'm always having the back of my mind that we're not just talking about anything where it's a podcast, but they don't need to think that way. It's up to me. I'm the podcaster. I really liked the episode you released with uh, Dr. Brian Keating recently. It always just feels like, like you said, a fly on the wall. And you guys, who knows what you're going to talk about? Those are just the best because it's a super smart guy. I mean, he's really a genius. We have such a fun time talking. So we've got the rapport. You know, Brian's like that. I have so many guests that are like that because you develop after 800 episodes, you sort of know who's your go-to person where you know you're going to have a great episode. And you know, they don't have to be on all the time. I have a stable of like 100 people that I like having on now. And, and I always try to find new ones anyway, but I really enjoy just having great, smart conversations that I could share with others. Because I think I have a, a perspective, other people have a perspective. And if you could get that out and just conversation, it's, it's the best as opposed to an interview. Cause I could, I could read an interview with Jordan Peterson. I don't, I don't need to have one on my podcast. People could listen to any, an interview with Jordan Peterson anywhere, but they can only listen to a conversation with Jordan Peterson and me here. And I have a particular set of interests that I bring up in conversation. Other people, Joe Rogan has his set of interests. So we're all, that's when it becomes a unique podcast. Yeah. Just in the last three weeks that I've been recording these shows, my real life conversation skills are improving from doing the interviews. Oh yeah, definitely. So like what we're talking about, I really do feel applies to anybody because I'm just listening better. I'm learning how to file questions away in a conversation. Like, okay, I don't want to forget to ask this. Like, this is relevant, but I really want to hear more about this story versus like interrupting immediately because otherwise I'm going to forget, you know? Right. You know, that's a, that's a hard skill too in interviewing. Like when I have a, like a guest on and they're talking, they might say three or four things that I want to ask follow-up questions about. So I have to keep listening to them, but also keep these three or four things in my head. Like I don't want to write anything down while they're talking because that's distracting to them and it might be distracting to me. The interview is like this three-dimensional thing. And then once I ask the question, I have to know it's my responsibility, not their responsibility to remember to back up to where we were so they can continue. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. And, you know, I had an interesting experience recently that was a different style of interviewing. So I was working on this audiobook with Charlemagne and um, Audible, sorry, does Audible original. So it's literally it was published by Audible. And so Charlemagne and I did this audiobook uh, called We Got Answers. And he gathered together all these African American leaders and politicians and entertainers and, you know, th thought leaders and so on. And 
I had to interview them about their experiences with racism. So there were two things that happened. One is I came up with all the questions where I worked, you know, Charlotte and I together worked, but we went back and forth 30 times with Audible as well on coming up with these questions. And I did a lot, an enormous amount of research about each person. But then I, I said to Charlotte, you don't need to use me to be the interviewer. You know, you could do it or get someone else to do it. So they had someone else to do it, but they said, can you just do the first one? And so I did the first one and they realized, oh, this person's done 800 podcasts. That's why he's done so many podcasts. Like we can't really use anyone else right now. And, you know, I was asking follow-up questions. You know, I was doing my job and there really is a difference in skill sets between a good interviewer and someone maybe not so good. But the interview style was very different. These were people talking about a very serious topic to them. Serious to me too, but they have obviously a different perspective than me. I really couldn't offer an opinion. Like often you and I are talking, I'll offer an opinion. Now my podcast, I'll offer an opinion. This was a situation where I'm completely on the opposite spectrum of gotcha journalism, where I'm just there to listen and ask. And I only ask because I think they've left something out as opposed to me trying to understand something. I have to remove my ego completely from the interview. It's all them. I'm there though to make sure they don't leave out anything critical, which is so easy to do. That was a different style for me as well, which was a lot more about just listening very carefully. And it was a lot more than I do on the podcast, which is more of a conversation. So that was an interesting learning experience for me as well, like a lesson that, I, that I've been able to take into my real life and my podcast life and, and so on. It was a different level of listening. Mm-hmm. How's the podcast going? Well, I haven't released the episodes yet. And I, I think I had about four or five in the can before I released my first episode. How many think you'll have in the can? I have um, five in the can uh, and I'm going to release four when I, I'm going to release four at one time when the show goes live. Yeah. And my plan is to do it next week on my birthday. And oh, excellent. When's your birthday? July 17th. July 17th. So you had the misfortune of having a summer birthday. So when you were growing up, you didn't really have birthday parties like all the other kids did. No, but I, I had, it was warm and I was in Michigan. So I was outside and had pool parties and fun stuff like that. So, so <laughs> what's your podcast called? The James Quandall show. James Quandall show. I, li- yeah, I like that I, style. You know, <laughs> we spent a lot of money trying to figure out a, a good name. <laughs> Tell me some of the topics in the first episodes. I've had some extremely interesting guests. My most recent episode I recorded was, was with America's rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He wrote a book called Thou Shall Prosper, and it blew my mind. I actually picked this book up in Dave Ramsey's studio in April when I went to Nashville on vacation. I couldn't put it down, and it challenged my mindset about money and about business and about tithing and a whole bunch of other stuff. It was a complete shot in the dark to invite him on. I was shocked he said yes. I basically just sent an email. Oh my God, that's amazing. And said, I loved your book. I've got a show and I'd really like to talk about it. And it must've just been the right time, right place. And he said yes and had a fantastic conversation. And he said he wants to continue talking like on future interviews because there's a lot more that we left on the table. Yeah, that's the thing. Again, good guests are good future guests. So let's back up a second. Let's talk about everything. So 
we were going down two different angles, which was, you know, your interest in spiritual thought and how it can improve life and how it could be, I don't want to say made secular, but how in the modern day, you know, thinking spiritually is an important route to success and your th ideas for others and you're showing it. And then also you have this expertise on setting up Amazon stores. You're an Amazon ninja. And so we were thinking of either courses or newsletters or coaching or consulting or speaking or some other way you can, or software products, some other way you could monetize that. So let's see where those are and let's maybe brainstorm on other things as well. Yeah. So last time we spoke, you were thinking of, we, we, we looked at, you had come up with table of contents ideas and book ideas for the spiritual thought stuff. And obviously for the podcast, how's it going? So podcast is good. Um, the book, uh, sort of the, the way that I'm doing these interviews, it's also helping with the book because the book that we talked about was the spiritual disciplines for entrepreneurs. And these folks are, most of them are entrepreneurs. And so through these interviews, I'm getting, just like we did with Dave Kirpin on the show, I'm getting kind of to the meat of the spiritual disciplines that they practice that helps them to be successful entrepreneurs. And so that's building the book. You do 10 of those even, or 20, whatever you want to do, get the transcripts, you edit them, you slap a cover on it, you write an intro for each chapter, or you write an intro for the overall book, you put in exercises, things like that, and boom, you have, uh, you know, the 10 noble truths for entrepreneurs. I make this, I make, I make the, this too hard. Like in my head, it has to be like this Mount Everest masterpiece that takes me 20 years to complete. Why do you think that? Because a lot of people think that, that way. And I used to think that way. I don't know why. Uh, maybe so that way I don't have to actually ever do it. <laughs> okay. That's one way. <laughs> one reason, and that's a valid reason. That could be the reason. Another is- And I'm afraid? Yeah. Yeah, so so on the one hand, maybe you don't want to actually do it. Number two is, yeah, maybe you're afraid that you'll publish something that people won't think you're smart or brilliant about this stuff. So that keeps a lot of people from, from acting. You know, you think that this is your one shot, and if your one shot's not good, then that's it. You know, like like the Eminem song, you got one shot. It's, it, it's never true that you have just one shot. If you have just one shot, that would be sad. If you think you have one shot and then you improve a little more, suddenly you have another shot. <laughs> so it's never the case that you just have one shot. You know, the other thing is, is that there's this myth of the writer who's, you know, plagued by his, you know, great opus, magnum opus work that he's going to do. It's going to be the great American book about, it's either a novel or about spirituality or about the history of the world or whatever. And the reality is most books don't do well. Most books are not widely read. The average book sells 2000 copies. The average published book by a publisher sells 2000 copies or less. Wow. And it's not that important. Like your, uh, uh, your goal in writing a book is so that your niche audience, some of that percentage of that will read it. And also so that you simply have a book out there. So now again, you could be asked to speak at events, or if, again, if someone's trying to decide between, oh, do I use James Quandell as a, a coach or consultant or speaker or buy his product, or do I use someone else? The person who's written the book wins, whether or not anyone's read the book. And then, by the way, it doesn't mean this is the only time you're going to use that material. Maybe later you write another book where it does become a, a million book bestseller 
you never know. And it just also depends. There's a lot of factors that go into book sales. Your book could be the best book in the world that's ever been written and it won't sell a single copy, or it could be a horrible book and it sells a billion copies. There are so many factors that go into it. So the key is with books, if you want to be a successful book writer, which is not necessarily your goal either, quantity over quality is the surest way to guarantee that. So if you can put out a book in the next you know, month, just using your first batch of podcast episodes, I would do it. And you'd self-publish. So when you self-publish, it means like later on, if you want to modify the book, you can do that also. You can unpublish and then republish the modified book and it'll be under the same, you know, ISBN number and so on. So, or, you know, you can just change the book and upload a new book. So I would just, I would put books out there as quickly as possible. I mean, I published 25 books. I've probably written 40, but I've published 25 and, uh, you know, here's the good thing. The ones that are horrible and many of the 25 are horrible. No one's read. So <laughs> I don't have Great to worry point. about what people think. So do you think that once you get your first book published, the second one, it's that getting over that fear of failure or whatever is easier or does it get harder with, with your second one? No, it's easier. I, it, I started writing in 1990. I started obsessively writing. I had a different agenda maybe than you. I really wanted to be the best American novelist. And I was interested in fiction. I was, I would read all day long. I would write 3000 words a day for years. I did this. I got thrown out of graduate school because all I was doing was writing. And it took me 14 years after that to publish my first book. I wrote probably five or six books during that period, full novels, maybe a hundred short stories. And none of them were even remotely publishable. And finally, 14 years later, I wrote and published my first book, which was a book about finance, actually. But then every, every year since then, there hasn't been a single year I haven't published a book. <laughs> and this year, you know, 2021 already, I've published two books. Do you ever go back to those books from 1990? Do you have any of that? I don't even have them anymore. You know, I, I, I don't know how I saved them, you know, on my computer then, which was at my graduate school where I still kind of kept an, an account even after I was thrown out. But now I don't know where they are. And then I did print them up, but I've thrown out all my belongings in the past few years. So, you know, it's best sometimes to just move on from those. Like if I take the ideas from those, I would just restart anyway, because I'm a better, I've got 20 years more experience now. So I'm just going to do a better job of it. And when I look back and I think about those, those books, I think I had too much ego in them. And I think that's a problem for a lot of writers their personalities are too much in the book rather than letting the characters have personalities. And then to write a book that had a kind of more literary style, that was another, uh, it took me a long time to get comfortable expressing my style instead of writing in kind of more formatted styles. So I would say choose yourself and my recent one, Skip the Line, are my best books because choose yourself is like, it, they're more like narrative nonfiction rather than a book about something. So there, there's more of a story about me and, and my troubles and my problems and how I bounce back from them. In prior decades, people would take narrative nonfiction and actually literally make them novels. So Charles Bukowski is a famous example. His, his first book, Post Office, which sold over a million copies, was really nonfiction about his time in the post office, but he called it a novel because there was no such thing as narrative nonfiction then with some exceptions like Tom Wolfe, uh, the electric Kool-Aid acid test. But most people wrote novels. They took their nonfiction experiences and turned them into novels, which 
when Bukowski actually wrote pure fiction, and I'm thinking he wrote a book called Pulp, uh, it was awful. He was best at narrative nonfiction, but he would call it a, a novel. And that's fine. That's great. I could have called Choose Yourself or at least aspects of it a novel, and but now narrative nonfiction is more popular. Someday I want to do uh, pure fiction too because I love, I don't, we've never even talked about this, but I love sort of detective novels like Robert B. Parker and yeah. Raymond Chandler and yeah. James Patterson. And So let me, let me ask you this. This is for my information. You know, I, I know from talking to Stephen Pressfield on this podcast that kind of each genre has its very specific beats. So for instance, if you want to write a romance novel, if you want to write a Harlequin romance novel, they specifically tell you these are all are the 10 beats that you must oh, really? hit in the, in the book. Otherwise, it's not a Harlequin romance. So what would you say are the components that make a detective novel different from, let's say, a thriller or a literary novel? Like, what are the, what are the things that have to happen? There has to be a detective. There has to be a detective. They have to be trying to solve some type of a problem, whether it was a murder or a theft in most cases, I would say. Um, a lot of times it seems like they have a colored past. Like, they weren't always on a straight and narrow. Like, they have came from a background that maybe makes them look at the world in a much different way. And sometimes these people were criminals, so they know how a criminal thinks. They almost always have a code of conduct. And because they're sometimes having to break the law to solve a crime, they have this code of conduct, whatever it is, that supersedes any rules or laws. My favorite is Spencer, and they just made a Netflix show about it. Robert B. Parker created the Spencer character, and it is super, super good. He is a Boston uh, detective. He was a cop and he got thrown out. And, but he has this code of conduct of how he treats people. He'll kill people. He, he's murdered many, many people throughout the series, but he still has like this code of conduct and honor and uh, of how he lives his life. But he murders people. So you'd be like, well, what kind of code of conduct is it really? Tell me the author again. I'm going to buy it right now. Robert B. Parker. He was heavily influenced by a guy named Raymond Chandler. Yeah, yeah. By the way, talk about quantity. This I'm looking at a book. This is book 50 of 50 in a, the Spencer series. Yeah, so what's interesting about the Spencer series is I would start with, with number one in the Spencer series. But when he died in 2010, he was asked before that, like, what do you want to happen with your character when, like, when you die? And he's like, I don't really care. I'll be dead. And yeah. so it's, it's continued on and someone else took over the writing of those books. And so I really liked all the ones that were written by him. I did not like as much the series as it continued on. The characters were similar, but you could just feel that something was different. It wasn't the same. So I just bought number one and it's the, the God Wolf God manuscript. Right. And so the interesting thing here is, and this is a very important point, actually, about whether it's business or entertainment. So um, famous institution hires the, our Spencer to recover a rare stolen manuscript. Okay, what does that remind you of? The Da Vinci Code? Yeah, it's totally the yeah, Da Vinci that... Code. So people say, oh, isn't that the Da Vinci Code? Who cares? The guy made millions selling books, obviously. So it, it does, it's not like he's going to copy the Da Vinci Code. Uh, but he could still use the same trope, the same ideas, and have his own spin on it. People were like, oh, no, I can't do that. That was already done. So what? There's probably been a million. If I Google uh, hires 
him to co- to recover a rare stolen manuscript. I'm curious, like how many books uh, I will come up with because that's a common trope and it's okay to do that. But Da Vinci Code came out in 2003 and this book came out in 1973. So who says Da Vinci Code didn't take this idea? Oh, that's interesting because on Amazon it says this came out in 2009. But yeah, so Da Vinci Code probably took it from this idea. And I won't use the word stole because it's Da Vinci Code was great also. They each had their own. What's really cool about the, I'm selling this series more. What, what I really like about it is that the first one came out in 1973. And I think... The last one that he did, oh man, like early 2000. And so you get to see the city of Boston change through the books as he's writing them. Because like you, he wrote like one book a year for the entire time that he was writing. He infuses, like in your interviews, he infuses the book with what he likes. He must love cooking and he must love wine because he'll describe these recipes like buckwheat pancakes in the novel that is so interesting. Sometimes I'll, I'll be reading and I'll tell my wife like, hey, can we have buckwheat pancakes tonight? Like Robert B. Parker just described it in the book and it sounded so good and we should have them. By the way, so I did Google, hires him to recover a rare stolen manuscript. And one thing that comes up is The High Window, a 1942 novel written by Raymond Chandler featuring oh. the detective Philip Marlowe. And it's not a manuscript, but it's a missing de- brasher doubloon, a rare and valuable coin. And so hires Marlowe to recover it. Yeah, and he did say, and he did give credit to on his books that he was influenced heavily by Raymond Chandler. Yeah, I'm sure, and that's that's good too. Like everybody's got their influences. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I love, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community and I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All 
I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see, you'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Canva. So speaking of Robert Cialdini, you know, he wrote the book Influence. So the first time he came on my podcast, I gave him a book as a gift called influence, same title as his book. And it was about poets who often deny being influenced by other poets, but we all stand on the backs of the greats to build the next generation of writers, poets, podcasters, businessmen, and so on. 
Yeah. How can you say if you were inspired by another thing or not? Like music, for example. I mean, if you you don't know where that scale came from in that song that you're writing. I mean, it could have came from something else. You hear you hear that happen all the time. Yeah. Or or look, you know, just like detective novels, I ask, like, think about music. What's if you think of a blues song, a blues song is blues because there are like four chords that every blues song has, you know, with some exceptions, but you know, in a rock song as other chords and, you know, the Beatles were originally a skiffle band. So they were influenced by this whole genre that doesn't exist anymore called skiffle. And then they morphed into rock. The Rolling Stones, all of their first hits were covers of the Chicago blues scene. And only several years later, they started writing their own original songs, which were kind of, you know, Chicago blues meets rock. You know, and of course, rap music, hip hop music is known for sampling songs from every genre. I think music is very inspirational in that you don't have to have the original idea. You're, you're, it's a collection of ideas plus you. I think that's really important for business too. Okay, was Amazon the first online bookstore? I have no idea, but it certainly wasn't the first online music store. It first certainly wasn't the first online clothing store. It wasn't the first online place to do your cyber storage. Google wasn't the first search engine. Facebook wasn't the first social network. I once was started a business where I don't know why I didn't do competitive research. I started building this business. It was called Stock Picker. It was in 2007. And about halfway through finishing the software, I realized I already had four competitors that had fully launched that were doing, there was nothing I was adding to what they were doing. And I got like depressed for a day until I realized, look, I studied the backgrounds of all these people who started these other companies. And I realized, hey, I've got a different perspective. I know more about what I'm doing than any of these people are. Uh, I could figure out what their motives were and it was different from mine. And I ended up being the only one of them that actually was successful and sold the business. So it's okay to do something when there's competitors. It's okay to do something where it's not 100% uniquely yours. It sounds like it would be actually be harder to go first because then you have to make it all from scratch. But if there's someone who went before you that proved the model or you can find what their opportunities are and then you can go and plug those holes with your product. Absolutely. In fact, if you're the first, chances are you're going to fail. <laughs> because <laughs> what if you make something that nobody else needs? Like I know if I made a phone and then I threw in like a virtual reality headset on top of it, okay, at the very least, everyone can use the phone and guess what? You could also now go do virtual reality. I'm making that up, but, or, or, you know, a phone that if I put it next to my heart, it tells me if I have heart disease or not. Like that would be, you know, think of a phone plus one unique thing. It's going to be 99.9% .9 of phone. And then I've got the one unique thing. Yeah. You know, this is why literary fiction, as good as some literary novels are, literary fiction sells much fewer copies than genre fiction. You're trying to make something from scratch when it might be great, but it might not be. And we, you know people like detective novels. So that's why I asked, what are the beats of a detective novel? Okay, I might have my own ideas about a detective novel, but if at least if I'm a good writer and I stick with these beats, I'm 95% of the way there of writing a decent detective novel. Yeah. And I think a decent detective novel needs some type of a closure by the end of the book of the original case. I don't, I don't know. I, most of the time when I'm reading a detective novel, it's like, I want to read it in one or two nights or three nights at most. And I want to move on to the next crime. There could be like something that goes between all the books or multiple books, but the main crime should be solved in one book. I, I, I remember reading also like, what's the difference between a thriller novel and a mystery. 
And then in a thriller novel, often uh, the protagonist or the the main guy who's trying to solve the thriller is at some point in the book, his life, his or her life is completely at the mercy of the enemy, mm. like, you know, or he'll die. And that's kind of the case. Whereas in a mystery, it's more like there's, you know, you think somebody did it, but then it turns out somebody else did it. Like there's usually that twist in a detective novel or a mystery. And I think a lot of, a lot of the stuff you're mentioning are more like detective thrillers, uh, which, you know, takes the detective genre and merges it with the thriller genre. Like a lot of the J James Patterson stuff, Lee Child stuff and so on are like detective, detective thrillers. Whereas a lot of Agatha Christie stuff, it's not like Hercule Poirot uh, is at the, might die at the hands of his enemy. He's just trying to like solve a crime and he goes down one path, but then there's a twist and there's another path to go down. The, uh, the, my other favorite, uh, detective series is by Henning Mankell. I don't know that one. You know, you have all these genres. I don't know. And how do you spell it? Henning H E N N I N G. And his last name is Mankell M A N K E L L. It's, uh, the Wallander series. And I actually think they made a TV. It seems like this is in. They just made a TV series on that one too. I'm pretty sure. Oh, I think I've heard about this. Okay, Faceless Killers buying it right now. That's for that's his first one of the of the Wilder series. So now look, we got to make you a million dollars. So let's. This is all. This is all good stuff. But uh, so I do. So there's a couple other things. The um, I told you at the end of our last conversation how I was going to be doing this uh, transformation challenge, and. Um, there, uh, basically Ben Greenfield has coaches and he is selling this sort of 12 week challenge where you get coaching, you get an app that you get access to that will help you track your food and track your exercises. The exercise gets programmed in. And then each week there's a different guest speaker who teaches you different things like mindfulness, teaches you like how to detoxify your home, uh, different exercise ideas. And I was invited to be the kickoff speaker for this transformation challenge. And my topic was going to be like habits, mindset, uh, motivation, how to get back a day when you're losing it and how to create an environment in your home that's like very conducive to success as far as your health. Since we talked, I, I did that, that kickoff call and it was 30 minutes long and it went really well. I was unbelievably nervous because it's like, okay, well, who am I to go teach these hundred people how to have a good mindset when half the time I don't have a good mindset myself, you know, like I, I beat myself up all the time and I, and I don't forgive myself for things sometimes, but, um, it went really well and they invited me back. And on Monday I did a second one and they upped my time to 45 minutes and they're going to do these quarterly now. So that's great. So how many people um, are kind of in the uh, virtual audience? A hundred. A hundred. They're all paying, right, yes. to be part. And do, do you get paid as a result of this? or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a paid speaker for it. So that that's awesome. So I wonder if it might be interesting for you to do your own kind of program like this. You know, because Ben is um, – he has the spiritual side and he has the physical and the fitness side. And he's extremely great on that guy knows so much about fitness and the, the, the body and the, you know, what makes us healthy and stuff. That's really people. And, and he is a, a mindset guy. Like he's got a really great mindset. You have a different 
type of mindset approach. I wonder if this is something, you know, you you could do that with a different twist. Like maybe, you know, it's more about you make a course. It's more about you know habits for for well being, as, as opposed to habits for you know physical, you know, perfect physical condition or. Yeah, because so like my whole deal with the podcast and with my blog and um, that how I surveyed the, the folks that are on my email list is in these like seven buckets and I stole it from Zig Ziglar. So we're talking about like stealing stuff from other people. He came up with this idea called the wheel of life. And it was seven buckets that if you could just, you didn't have to be amazing at any of these seven buckets, but if you just got okay at these seven buckets, you would have a pretty good balanced life. And so I, the first thing I did was I sent a survey out to the, uh, the Wiseman Wednesday followers on my blog and like, just ask like, Hey, here's the seven buckets. Which of these are your opportunities? And, and the two lowest buckets that they had was fitness and, and friends. And so, so social slash physical health. And so I invited people onto the show to talk about those things. And I had a really good value proposition of why they should come on my show because I like one of the people I brought on was Dr. John Deloney. And he is one of Dave Ramsey's personalities and he's on the Dave Ramsey show. And I was like, Hey, I interviewed my audience and they said they'd need help with friendship. Like you talk about friendship with Dave all the time. Like, are you willing to come on and like help them with how to make friends, keep friends and be a good friend? Yeah. I, I listened to that. That's sort of my shtick with this coaching idea is like those seven buckets. Like you don't have to be amazing in any of them. Most people probably are good at one or two of them. Just that's, there's some of them that they kind of prioritize. Like you see the really, really fit guys, but then they, their career is in shambles or someone's career is like 10 out of 10, but then their, their family life is really, really bad. Like there's these like huge gaps usually from the best to the worst in their seven buckets. But if you can just get them all to be like in the middle, you can live a really, really good life. And you know, that's a really great point and it's really important. And my argument is if any of these buckets are not doing well, you're probably not doing well. Yeah. So did you pull up the buckets? Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, business, career, finances, health, family and friends, romance, personal growth, fun and recreation, physical environment. And maybe there's more, I don't know, but that's the one I'm seeing in this one wheel right here. Yeah. But, but my whole point here is if, if, if your family and friends life is not going well, your business life is not going to go well. If your health is not going well, your, your fun and recreation is not going to go well. So you, like you say, but if you're in the middle of all these, you probably have a pretty good life. And so, you know, one thing that's good is why don't you create a, a, a maybe a book, but I'm thinking now a course and you just call it, you know, Zig Ziglar's wheel of life. Uh, you know, you're, you know, maximizing Zig Ziglar's wheel of life in your life, or I don't know, we'd have to come up with a better title, but I would even borrow off of Z the Zig Ziglar brand. Yeah. Because I didn't know about this before you said it, but I know the, I know who Zig Ziglar is. I know a lot of people like, you know, worship the guy's stuff. And this looks like a lot of common sense to me. So it's a, just a good shortcut for millions of people to understand what you're doing. And you have your own unique perspective on how to succeed and achieve in each one of these buckets. You should do it. Or you, you know, like I see YouTube videos all the time. Oh, here's a YouTube video that explains stoicism in seven minutes. Here's a YouTube video that explains Jordan Peterson's ideas on success in seven minutes. And you should do your own stuff on Zig Ziglar's 
Well, like for instance, how Ryan Holiday has made a great kind of franchise almost in, in explaining the ancient philosophy of stoicism to the modern person. Now the modern person could read, go back to Marcus Aurelius and read that, but that's written, you know, 2000 years ago. Why not read something that applies to modern day life and has modern day stories? I know Zig Ziglar is fairly modern. It's just the past few decades, but you have your own twist on this. You could translate Ziglar for your audience and succeed at that. Like that would be a great course. And, 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 and it wouldn't be a hard course to make it's, it would be, you should make that course. You should script out that course and make it in the next few weeks. And I'm super passionate about it. Like I love, I love like talking about it and, and I'm doing it in my own life. Like my wife and I have what I've coined the family board meeting, uh, once a quarter at the end of the quarter, we sit down and we ha we go through these seven buckets and we rate where we're at. We look at goals and then we, we, we have this whole process, like all figured out of like how, like in, in your terms, like how to get 1% better at each of these buckets, like every single day. And it's changed our life. Like it, it really has. And that leads me to like, you ask me like, what's going on? Like one other thing that's going on is like, that was a result of these long conversations was my wife put in her notice at her job a few weeks ago. Wow. Congratulations to her. Yeah. And she's going to help with all the business opportunities that I need help with at home. And it's going to help a ton. You know, a good family life is an important stepping stone to success. Having it be healthy, whatever your situation is, helps towards success. Whenever I've had an unhealthy family life and I've had an unhealthy family life many times, it's only resulted in failure and being broke for me and, and misery. So it's so important, this thing. I'm, I believe you too when you say that you are passionate about it. Like use Skillshare, make a little course on it and see how it does. And then maybe you, that gives you suggestions about how you could, uh, or maybe you could be a, a, make almost like a coaching program, coaching people using these buckets. Like first you make a course, then you coach people a little bit on it. Then you make a kind of training program to train other people to be coaches using this method. And there's a variety of ways to, to scale it. Yeah. So I think that's a good idea. But also I want to hear about like, uh, have you thought about or, or decided not to do the Amazon seller course idea or anything with that? So I started building it. I started recording and I, my heart just wasn't in it. It just, that's fine. It just, it, it, it just didn't feel like, I don't know. It just felt like a, I couldn't think of what I could really add differently than what was already out there. Yeah, and 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 nobody should do something they don't want to do. You, you, life short. You don't want to. You don't want to give up doing things you love to do more of things you hate. In the limited amount of time we have, and it's a shame because, like, I see how it's like, you know, I've made a really good business on Amazon, and it's it's done well, and I have a lot of skills. I mean, logically, it should make sense that that would be the thing that I'd be the like super passionate about building. But it's for some reason it's there's it's just not there. But like with everything going remote, right? I mean, and again, pandemic with all the vaccinations, people are starting to go out to stores again. And yet we're going to keep our habits now of shopping more remotely and virtually than we used to. It does seem like there's something there. Like I would think about other than a course or a newsletter or whatever, what are other things that could potentially help stores that are struggling, mom and pop stores that are struggling? What are ways to help them get online because I'm seeing this in many cities, for instance, 
people have stopped going to the mom and pop stores because they haven't gone in the past year and they got used to buying on Amazon. How can you help the average mom or how can you make money helping the average mom and pop store make more money using Amazon? Cause most of them don't have Amazon seller stores. Like, is there some software that could be made? Now you might not make it, but you could spec it out and a software person can make it. Is there software that could be made to help people uh, quickly set up their Amazon seller store? Is there an Amazon seller store that could kind of be an umbrella for other Amazon seller stores? So you could make once you could make it an Amazon seller store and then put everyone's mom and pop stores inside yours. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, like a wholesale type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. If Amazon allows that, I don't know what Amazon. They do. Yeah. There are. are brands that there are brands that they, they basically buy a company's products and it's, yeah, it's wholesale. They buy them and they resell them under their brand name. Right. So let's say I was like a mom and pop, you know, hardware store. I don't know. I don't know how to get out. I've been running my family's hardware business for 50 years. I don't know what, what to do on Amazon. You know, again, is there software where a mom and pop sort of person could just easily set up their store with one click or, you know, just upload their product pictures of their products and boom, it's set up. Cause I found it to be very difficult to set up an Amazon seller store. So that means there must be some software solution also to help me do it better that doesn't currently exist. Yeah, I, it is difficult because I was setting up a new account while I was making the course. That was sort of the the first step was to get a new account that I could launch from scratch so then I would be building a real brand. It is twice as hard to do that than it was when I first launched my first brand. It's gotten even more difficult like because of the verification process. Like They want to make sure that only legitimate companies and people are on there. Yeah, and then, and then also... Why should it just be Amazon? Why can't I sell also on, how do I get set up on Pinterest, Etsy, um, and all these other platforms for selling that appeal to different audiences? Like there's there's gotta be, could there be one piece of software that with one click I'm on every possible platform or I'm on like 20 of the 30 possible platforms. So just like brainstorm a little bit more, like this is an idealist thing. Is there a problem you could solve that can help a lot of people and, and, and the, the overriding principle is not only helping these people, but you're helping cities keep their mom and pop stores and you're helping people transition to this online world where, where maybe they, you know, now they realize that they should have done it a long time ago because of the pandemic, but now they really want to do it. And they, they managed to survive the pandemic. In my own town, there's this store that uh, makes lavender products and they grow the lavender on their own farm. And then they make soaps and potpourris and like all sorts of interesting stuff and they sell it on their website. But last I checked, they weren't on Amazon, but I'm sure there's tons and tons and tons of people like that around that have these really cool, unique products, but they're more like, they're not like Etsy products. They're, they're more, they're larger manufactured than that. They're not custom. Right. You know? And so, so there's a basic statistic, which is something like people are 30 or 40 or 70% more likely to buy on Amazon than to go to someone's website and buy because they trust Amazon. They don't trust a website they've never heard of, even if it's the same brand. So they're still more likely to hit buy on Amazon, even if the product is a little bit more expensive than go to someone's website and buy it there. Yep. So, so every mom and pop store should know that statistic and know that they need a presence on Amazon. This is definitely idealist time where, okay, you hated doing the course. That's fine. But is there so, you you are an expert in this field is there something that that can help fill the gap for these people so that they could survive in this new world whether it's a software solution 
you know, maybe you're tired of consulting. So there's certainly a consulting solution, but I understand being tired of that. And that's not the best way to scale to a million anyway. That is an option. Like if I just wanted to take my agency another layer bigger to where we serviced 20 accounts, we, I mean, 20 brands, larger brands that, I mean, that would work, but I would, I would get a team. I would have account managers. I mean, you, you've done that. So you know exactly what it would need. Yeah, but. That, I, I understand. Right. And, and look, honestly, if you did do that, you would make a million dollars. I could do quickly. that. I know I could do it in less than six months. I mean, I know I already know how I I have the proof of the concept, but see, here's what I would do additionally is what makes your agency stand out from other agencies doing something similar? Well, for mine right now, the reason why people hire me is because the only products that I represent are nutritional supplements. And so, so you're the expert on that. I'm the expert in nutritional supplements. So if you, if I don't sell dog toys, I actually had a lot of people that reached out from the, uh, more than an Amazon Ninja podcast asking if I could help them launch their Amazon stores, but they weren't dietary supplements. It was other types of products. And so because I niched down so far and then I know the FDA regulations and I know um, the rules and, and how the COAs work and all of that, that it, it makes me different than the other people that are out there. And let me ask you a question. Is there any kind like, think of all the tasks you do and people you work with do to set up their stores. Is there any way to automate any of this so that it could be sort of like Amazon seller as a service? Some of it, there is like software as a service tools. Like for the longest time I did advertising all manually on Amazon. Like that's a big part of the business is like all the, the ad buying, all the pay-per-clicks. And recently I, I started using a, a software tool called Celix. And they, um, they automate what I used to spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing manually. They do it automatically. But what about in the setup process, which strikes me as a, at least having gone through it, that's the only part I've gone through. That's, the, that's a hard thing. Is there anything in the setup process that you could automate? I'm not sure. I haven't seen anything. I would come up with ideas that could make your agency a little bit unique. So you could call yourself Amazon seller setup as a service, and that's infinitely scalable if some company is interested in your company. So that this way you're not just an agency, you also have some software thing. It might be just as simple as, okay, you know, first you go to a screen where, you know, you have to check these, all these requirements, and then it fills out Amazon forms or whatever to make sure you've fit all their nutritional supplement requirements. And then there's a way to upload all the different nutritional supplements, all the dietary information, and so on, just like some simple front end so that the stores themselves can do most of the work. And then you do kind of like the final step of uh, launching them all on Amazon, anything at all. Like you could start off simple, but then your customers will tell you, Hey, do you have this, 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 your customers will help you figure out the next set of features. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Let me think about it. Because you still have this agency, right? And you're still making money with it. You might as well build it up, sell it and make a, a couple million dollars from it. Just not that hard. Yeah. And I've been sort of letting it go the opposite direction since we started this. Like it's been, it's been because I've been so excited about these other ideas. I've been sort of like decreasing the other side of that business. Well, well, that's fine too, though. That's why I'm saying what can be replaced? Where, where can you replace yourself with software? And like you said, maybe you can hire some young people and train them so that they're doing the bulk of the work, or maybe you can outsource to another country like on Fiverr or freelance.org or whatever so that other places are doing most of the work, but you can 
potentially take on more clients. And again, you've niched down so much, but there's still a lot of clients in that category. It's relatively easy. Your sales process is easy because you're the only one maybe who does it. If you have software to help you with some of the work, I just wouldn't give up on this so fast. I understand if you hate doing the course, don't do the course, but you've already invested some time and energy into this. It's better to sell it than to shut it down. And you just might need a little more oomph to, to sell it. And I yeah. think you could do it. It's not that hard to do it as, as you, as you know. So, but you do need something unique. Like you need some ability to scale and maybe like a software thing would be the best, or maybe some nice front end, or maybe again, maybe some places won't mind if you create just this umbrella nutritional store and all they have to do is upload their products to you and they're done. I know for a fact that some of the Amazon agencies that are out there that sell supplements, but they also sell other products, they're just buying the stuff wholesale and the companies they're selling enough. They're buying enough from them wholesale that they don't even care. And so like those brands could be on Amazon themselves and make, you know, cut out the middleman. I think this is a, the, the fastest way to a million dollars. And I can help you each step of the way through this, but you have to kind of come up with that first idea list that you think might have, you know, I would practice do a bunch of idealists around this concept of how can you help the mom and pop store a, a little bit more? You know, the domain better than anyone. And look, if you decide then, nah, I'm not really not interested in, uh, I don't want to do it anymore. Then that's fine. I like the idea of growing the Amazon agency because I I've helped these brands a lot. Like I feel really confident in my abilities. It doesn't mean you have to stop doing the other things. You should do more than one thing. So like when I was making that business, I described earlier, stock picker, I was also writing books. I was also uh, writing articles that I was getting paid for, you know, sometimes two or three times a day, I'd get like $200 an article. So it was, it, it was adding up as an income while I was, you know, building businesses. Uh, I was, you know, I was doing like four, I had four or five different streams of income that were requiring time, but you know, that was, so I would, had time and money to, to build and launch a business that made me millions. That's what you want to do. So if you want to write this spiritual book or do the Zig Ziglar stuff, you should do it because that's what you're passionate about. And those will be successful too. This, you should now be on a straight path towards what can I add to scale this? What additional problems can I solve that my customers need? And then you, you, you make it, whether it's software or text or an umbrella brand or a different business model, like buying everything wholesale and then, you know, selling it yourself, you do whatever business model, you know, you come up with in these idea lists and we'll, we'll go through them together. You build it up and you sell it six months from now. I, I give this a six to nine month time frame before you have a, a, a million in your, in your bank account doing this. Meanwhile, you might have a million in your bank account doing the other things as well. I love, I love the idea of doing something around the Zig Ziglar thing and maybe even take other brands and do similar things like that. And I love the idea of the podcast and writing some books and doing some coaching that might give you further ideas. The other thing is too, I know you from Twitch. Uh, you were on, I was streaming Twitch. You were on there and I know you've been a moderator of like some very successful Twitch accounts. Uh, I'd like to figure out how to have a successful Twitch account. For some reason, I've been successful on many other platforms. Well, which... I gave you the list and did you do the ideas? <laughs> no, I didn't, which is my fault, but I do want to do them. So, you know, what would be good is take the list you made for me or some other list like that. 
make a course out of that. I would literally buy, or many people would buy a course, how to be successful at Twitch. And maybe it has six 10 minute classes. So this is what Jay and I were talking about before you got on. So Jay, this is our opportunity. I would do it because there's, there's equipment, there's all the different, so like I, you have to, like Jay and I were just talking about this. You have to have like Discord, StreamYard, OBS, what platform are you going to focus on? You know, and then you have to understand Twitch and all its little things and how you hook up all your equipment to it. And I think what a lot of people, like, yeah, we could go on and on about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, of course, <laughs> right. We, that's the whole point is we could go on and on, like how to actually have a personality to attract exactly. people, yeah. you know, how to play the game and chat with people at the same time. Or what if you want to do streaming about another topic? Like we were just talking to Jen Glantz about going on Twitch to talk about marriage. So Twitch is going to start to be this general purpose streaming platform for many things, not just games. And I think a kind of get started, get started on Twitch package, which includes a course and maybe an advanced one, which includes like some equipment. Uh, again, this is something to make an idea list about. I'm going to go back to your idea list for me, because I really, I, I kind of have not tried lately to get better at Twitch, but I really would like to, I don't even know where your idea list is, uh, for Twitch. It's called 10 ideas for streaming. And that you did number one. What was number one? Uh, get, get, uh, verified on lead chess. Oh, I am verified on lead chess. So yeah, I'm going to get I'm gonna, verified. I'm going to cross on. it off for you. Hold on. Cross it up. Check. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get, um, verified on chess.com as well. I've been watching you that you're playing uh, classical games now, which I need to get back into. Listening to your most recent episode, oh, we haven't talked in a while. You're recently on the Perpetual Chess Podcast. It got me super excited about learning chess again. Oh, okay. Hey, can you, can, uh, that's cool. That's, uh, uh, you know, it's been fascinating to me because it's made me realize a lot of things about just adult improvement in general, not just about chess, but about anything. That was an idea that I had that I wanted to give to you was like some type of a, it could be chess related. It could be not chess related. It could start as chess related, but it seems like this niche, this adult improver niche, or even in chess is like, people are like, what books should you read? What courses should you take? What podcast should you listen to? How should you play? Like a whole study regiment that could be packaged up and sold for adult improvers. I, I, I think there's a lot of them out there and they have money and they just need to know what direction to go into. This is all good advice. Everything we're talking about here could make a lot of money, but between now and the next two sessions that we have, we should really figure out what are the three different ways you're going to all together make a million. We have some thoughts about two of them. I think you have some expertise in this Twitch streaming adult improvement stuff. You've seen it in action. You've been a moderator of successful Twitch accounts. This is a field of expertise that you have that you clearly enjoy and that you have something to offer there. And I'm a person who has a problem that needs solving in this area and you could help me. And there should be some scalable way you could help me. I mean, how many, how many Twitch streamers are there? There's 9.36 million active streamers. Okay, so I think you have an audience. For Not all of them are successful, and be, but all of them would like to be successful. And that's active streamers. So think of how many quit because they couldn't get anyone to come watch them. Right, like I'm probably not considered an active streamer because it's been months since I've actively streamed. So so you've got an audience and, and you're an expert. I feel like you should, and you enjoy it. This is like all the criteria is... Um, 
you know, what's that What's that philosophy? Uh, I've done a podcast on it, but now I'm forgetting. Ikigai. Um, it's yeah, the, Japanese, yeah. the Japanese secret for having a purposeful life. And it's usually you see these circles. So I'm going to, I'm going to look at these circles and I bet you this. So, so there's these big circles of what you love, what the world needs, what you could be paid for and what you're good at. So you, you clearly love helping people Twitch stream, particularly on chess, but maybe in other fields. But, you know, for instance, there's a, the just chatting section of Twitch, which could be about spiritual concepts or Zig Ziglar's concepts or about Amazon selling or whatever. Then there's what the world needs. You know, again, adult improvement or the world needs, everybody wants to feel relevant and, and you know, Twitch is, is good for that. What you can be paid for, clearly that's not in question. And what you're good at, well, that's not in question either. You're good at it. So Ikigai, your Ikigai, uh, kind of satisfies all the, the intersection of all these. And it suggests, you know, doing something relating to what we were just talking about. Now, does, does it fit the Amazon seller stuff? You don't necessarily love it, but the world needs it. You can be paid for it and you're good at it. And I do love many parts of it. I really do. I just think what I would need to do is find a way to not do the parts of it. I don't like, and have someone else do that. Right. And just do what I like. Cause I'm doing everything right now. Like the whole business. Right. And you don't need to do that because so much help can be either automated or paid for cheaply. Like mm -hmm. you just have to, you just have, and then also your business model, the business model of an agency may be right, maybe partly right, or maybe wrong. So this is where idealists come in and you start brainstorming is like, what software is needed? What, you know, what are other solutions that these people could have to get, um, their, their stuff online? Like, uh, you know, what are other ways for me to do what I do, but either automated or outsourced or whatever, or, or, or there are tools you can hand to people that where they could do it on their own. Maybe all you need to do is kind of package up all the software and sell that software package, you know, so white label every piece of software out there as your own brand and sell the package. Or I don't know, there's a million things, or again, do the umbrella brand and where you buy up or, or people kind of sell through your brand and you just take like a percentage fee or you charge them once to be in your, in your Amazon store or whatever. Um, so I think, I think there's, and then the, the Zig Ziglar stuff, I think that also, or, or spiritual thought or Christian thought, this also fits your Ikigai and you kind of have to, I think it has to fit, you have to figure out the different ways you can be paid for it. Cause that's unclear a little bit. Although clearly you are being paid for it. So there's evidence, you know, like the stuff you're doing for Ben, who's a great guy. Everybody should listen to his podcast. He's an amazing human being. Uh, you, you know, you know, there's some ways you're going to be paid for it, but you know, you have to figure out if you can be paid enough for it. Clearly the world needs this type of stuff. That's why people are excited about what you're doing and you're being asked back. You're good at it. You love it. So this fits the Iggy guy. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. I like the, what you love circle intersected with the, what you are good at circle is passion. And the, what you love circle intersected with the, what the world needs circle is mission. And the, what you can be paid for circle intersected with the, what you are good at circle suggests profession. So, and again, all these, the intersection of all these things is your icky guy. So, which is your kind of, is something that's purposeful that you can make money for. And, and you could potentially scale and make a lot of money. And they had a good book on this too. Yeah. I, I think I did a podcast around that book or at least 
I was thinking about it, but maybe I didn't do it. I don't know. Jay, did we ever do a podcast about this? I forget. Uh, I didn't. I didn't think so. Yeah, I have the book, Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. And Hector Garcia, I just, I don't think we ever reached out to them to come on the podcast. You know, there's another book that is, it's a little, it's kind of similar, but not exactly. But it's the, uh, it's, it's the Denmark version of a similar concept called Huga. It's H-Y-G-G-E. And then like Denmark usually is like the top on like the happiness surveys around the world oh this looks great so this book like talks all about uh why and how they do it huga huga it's huga it's huga danish secrets to happy living or here's huga unlock the danish art of coziness and happiness yeah basically they 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 wore night they wear nice warm fuzzy clothes have a lot of candles sit in front of a fireplace drink uh hot chocolate with marshmallows and and you know it's all that's all the and live in a socialist society, so it's no <laughs> they don't have to worry about money. Um, and then there's this book, uh, wab, there's this idea wabi sabi, which is Japanese wisdom for a perfectly imperfect life. The, this definitive guide teaches you how to use the Japanese concept of wabi sabi to reshape every area of your life and find happiness right where you are. Uh, I, I like the word imperfect, so I'm gonna have to take a look at this. Anyway, all this is interesting stuff. So let's uh, we're, we got to get you over the finish line, get a million dollars cash in the bank. Yeah, we need to double down. I, I kind of just keep getting excited about ideas and then not finishing any of them. That, that's okay, too. <laughs> that's okay, too. And it, it's a little bit like we haven't – usually I meet with people like every week or so on this in this series. We haven't met in a while. I, I'm sorry I had to postpone. I'm really excited about everything you're doing. I'm a client for everything you're doing. So <laughs> um, you should put it together like a nutritional supplement company for anti-aging. I've had so many anti-aging people on, and they all have their own list of supplements. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. And yeah, you could partner or I could partner with um, like some of these guys are just researchers, you know, and yeah. they don't, they don't have a product. I'm trying to think of one uh, who you just had him on recently. Who were the people that you had on? Well, um, on anti-aging, there was a uh, Sergey Young recently and David Sinclair and David Sinclair. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. So David Sinclair, uh, you know, he recommends a lot of different great supplements in his book and you know, there should be maybe one anti-aging value pack or something like that. You know, again, you could consider using your own techniques to set up your own store and just see if you could do it cheaply and you could do it kind of like, you know, drop shipping style, you could, you could t- incur little cost and set up your own store and see if there's, uh, and then do, you know, cheap advertising and, and see if anybody's buying. Do you, do you think there's anything in partnering with one of these people to like launch a brand together with, with their name? Yeah, absolutely. What I would do there though is you have to offer something. So I would set up the store and then you could say, listen, I'm going to find somebody to partner with. I'm coming to you first. Are you in or are you out? Yeah. And we'll sell. This, yeah, exactly. This way they could, they, they could see you're not just some random guy that you're ready to go like in a day. Yeah. Yeah. And I already know how to do all of that. Like yeah, the whole private labeling aspect and all of it. So yeah, that that's a great idea. All right, all right, James. So let's talk again in about two weeks. But I'm I'm excited for everything you're doing. I'm 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 gonna look into this Zig Ziglar thing. I think that's an interesting thing to write about. I'll show so, you the one that um. Let me send you uh, this article I wrote that has the one the one that you were reading from isn't the same one that I use. Um, I'll send you the one uh, the article I wrote that talks all about 
my family board meeting. Uh, and it has, yeah, it has the wheel life in the article so you could see it, but there, I just dropped it into the chat. This, um, basically this whole idea of the family board meeting, it got, uh, I stole this Zig Ziglar thing from a, a Dave Ramsey book called Entree Leadership. And then I stole the sort of meeting idea from, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's total recall book, his, his, his sort of, uh, autobiography. Learn to set goals like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Zig Ziglar. That's, by the way, is a great title for a book. Yeah, this and yeah, and by the way, it's a great title for a YouTube video. Try everything. So I know we we got to wrap up probably, but I my issue is is like the like creating publicity or buzz around some of this stuff, like like some of the ideas. Yeah, I mean, don't worry too much about that. Just move forward and see what happens. And, and there's ways to do that. So we could think about it right now, just move forward and figure out what are the things you're going to do. Start making more like here you have learned to set goals like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Zig Ziglar. You don't want to do an, and you want to do two different articles, you know, maybe not in this case, but in, in other cases and the publicity stuff we can figure out next time. That's, that's a different category of thinking, but right now you're really good at, at coming up with these ideas and doing, and I really appreciate the, the Twitch suggestions. Once I get back on Twitch, I'm going to do them. I challenge you to put a time on your calendar where you're going to stream again. So I'll, and I'll be there. I'll make sure I'm there. All right. I think I'm thinking actually first or second week of August. I'm going to play in my first over the board tournament in, in 25 years. So I've been kind of just focusing on that. That's why yeah. you see me playing classical games now. So cool. that, that's a better way to prepare than, than blitz. And, and how come uh, Yasser calls you Jim? I, I don't know. By the way, that was like a bucket list moment for me. Like that here was I so am, cool. That was he, so cool. Here I've only been, you know, restudying the game for the past six months, and suddenly I'm on like the highest, you know, live streaming chess analysis. You know, there's the grand chess tour in Croatia is happening. Yasser and Gary and all these people are are analyzing that, and then I'm on there. And of course, you could see it in the chat. Like, who the hell is this guy? And but I, I, and I knew that would happen, but I didn't care. I just wanted to do it. That was like a bucket list moment to be front and center in the middle of the chess universe for one split second. That, I thought it was super cool. And was it an okay interview? I was worried people would be like, well, yeah, you know, it's it's really kind of outside the box for Aaron Yasser to do an, an interview like that. Even though I, I, I saw he was trying and I was trying to help him a little do the interview by commenting on his stuff and asking him questions. But I was worried if it was holding people's interest. Yeah, I thought it was good, and it it makes me think it could be like a a a continuation. Like, like I just because you did it with you did it with Kasparov too. Uh, yeah, and like I, I focused on the theme of which I think is what people could relate to. It's not my own experience, but the theme of adult improvement. It's possible, and uh, just letting people know that. I think is inspiring to people. Now, maybe I could have gotten into a little more details about what I'm doing, but I knew I only had a few minutes. Well, you just hear from so many grandmasters. They talk about how they don't calculate the same as they did when they were teenagers and how they, they like that's, you hear that all the time, but you don't hear very many people that are saying like, okay, I don't calculate as well. I mean, you did this on the Perpetual Chess Podcast, but I don't calculate as well as I did when I was a teenager, but now I actually have like, better understanding of why I'm doing something. Like, because I can't calculate as fast, I had to get better at the why. At every level of life, no matter what you're doing, you have to say, what are my advantages now and what are my disadvantages? So when I was 
20 years old, my advantage was I had an amazing memory and I can calculate my spatial intelligence was through the roof for like it is for many young people. Now, as you get older, you've, I, it's been a while since I've had to memorize things and uh, it's been a while since I've had to calculate in any area of life so, so hard, but I've become better at understanding ideas and philosophies behind things. And so that's what I focus on learning now. And it's, look, when you saw me playing on Twitch chess before, I was like in the 2000s. Now I'm in the 2300s. So I've improved. I bet I wouldn't get a win on you in seven games if we uh, had seven games again. I can't play any short games because I promised Jay if I play any short games in the month of July, I owe him $1,000. No, we should play a few, a best of 10, two plus one, and see if I can shave one game off you. And oh, we'll donate $1,000 to Jay. Only if Jay gives me permission. Hey, sure. <laughs> But all right, let's talk later. Uh, thank you so much, James. Thanks, Jay. And I will talk to you guys soon.